0: Man, it's so exciting to be part of a church where God is still doing His thing. God is still calling us to be a blessing, and so many of us are being blessed. Hey, welcome to Brent and Bev from Canada. (laughs) so good to see you guys. Sorry, just spotlights right there on you guys. It's so nice to have you visiting with us. Um, But God is still doing His thing. And uh, men, I just want to invite your, your ongoing heart and passion that we don't simply come to church, we follow Jesus and we trust Him as He takes us to new levels of what it means to engage the world around us. So going into today's preach, uh, I saw this meme the other day that says this, unicorns are mentioned nine times in the Bible, cats are mentioned zero times, and that's all you need to know about the Bible. Now, I know you're feeling nervous. Like, can we laugh about a joke about the Bible? Is that okay? Well, well, the unicorn part is true. The cat's part is actually wrong because the cats are mentioned in the Bible by the other name, Satan. Okay? So... So now you're like, okay, Stephen, but you said the unicorn part. Where does that come from? Well, for those of you who may have a King James Version with you, and if you could do a word search, you would find the word unicorn in the Bible nine times. All right, so what's going on there? Do we believe in mythology here? Well, you know... We use the word now in English, but as most of you know, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew. And so when the people who were doing the King James translation came to that word, they looked at this Hebrew word and they wanted to find, you know, what's the word for an animal with a single horn, a unique horn? And if we look at the passages talking about the unicorn, it's always talking about its strength and how God is so much stronger than the unicorn. So here we live in Africa. Can you think of an animal that is large and powerful with a single horn? A rhino, all right? So most people have come to understand that's probably what they're thinking about. But the reason why I raise this is because sometimes reading the Bible can be super confusing. We are, for those of you who are joining with us, we've been working through the book of Exodus and we've worked through all the drama, all this kind of stuff that makes it into the children's stories and the movies. And now we're getting to the most juiciest part of Exodus, which is all these wonderful laws. But then we really struggle with how do we read these laws? You know, uh, on Wednesday, we had such an incredible launch of our Bible Equip module, and we had a whole lot of fun at the same time, so if you missed out on that, well, uh, you know, you can join a life group, and if you really aren't in a life group and you want to plug in, please come and speak to me about that, but we're learning how to read the Bible, and one of the things we spoke about was that many of us approach the Scriptures like a grab bag of feel-good quotes, And all that I'm looking for is this little quote, this little dose of Christian comfort that I can put on my Facebook page, I can put on my WhatsApp profile, and that's kind of all I need. But what do we do with all the parts of Scripture that don't fit that? Especially a part like what we're going through with all of these really strange laws. Now, one of the things that God wants us to see when we come to the Scriptures There are many things, but one of the big things is what I've started to call just these threads of truth that make their way throughout Scripture. And they're not always there, and you'll never see them if we're just pulling out these verses one at a time. But just like a tapestry, makes a a thread will make its way from this part of the tapestry into that picture, but if you had to pull on it, you'll see it's one single thread. In the same way, there are these themes there are these threads in Scripture that when we see them, and when we pull on them, and when we realize how they're integrated throughout the entire biblical story, it can be so powerful to help us know more of who God is, what He is saying to us, and what He's calling us to. And today we're going to be looking at one such thread and so we're going through the book of Exodus we're going past all the drama we're at the bottom of Mount Sinai the Israelites are going to spend about a full calendar year there and then we get all of these laws and last week we looked at the top 10 or the first 10 the 10 commandments or the 10 words of God and wasn't that an awesome sermon right In fact, I think it was the longest preach that I've ever done here at Riverside. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but nonetheless, uh, I think God is speaking to us. and So mercifully, we're not going to go through all of the rest of the laws in that level of detail. And and just a reminder for those of you who missed uh, last week that I made a video uh, on the Glad You Asked series that you can go find on a YouTube page. Just where I address this bigger question, what do we do with the strange laws about tattoos and no bacon and no prawns and not wearing two types of clothes? Do I have to obey those laws as a Christian? Uh, This video answers that question in way more detail than I can do this morning. So assuming that, that we know that these laws were for Israel, this newly developing nation coming out of Egypt, they're this migratory people, they need religious laws, they need civil laws, they need laws to help them just govern themselves as a nation, and so God is giving them all of these laws. But if you had to read through this book of Exodus, you're going to see several chapters worth of laws that are all about the tabernacle. And the theme of the tabernacle is one of these threads that I want to draw our attention to today. And hopefully, here's what I want to ask of you. I want to ask you to really engage your imagination. You know, so often we kind of want a a simple sermon with two or three quick things that I can not put into practice tomorrow, but it helps me digest it easily you know, or something solid that I can wrap my head around. But I think sometimes what God wants us to do is to really open up our mind. And when I say the word imagination, I'm not saying we're going to make things up. What I am saying is when we conceive of the things of God and when we allow ourselves to to be shaped by how I think about God, there's always more to imagine and there's always more of God's truth there. And I'm really hoping that at the end of today, God's presence and power has invaded our imaginations, and we're going to get there through this very unlikely pathway, and that is through all of these laws about the tabernacle. Now, if you don't know what the tabernacle is, I know you're dying to find out, but the tabernacle is really, remember, these are migratory people working through the deserts And so they haven't settled down. They're not in their land. And so they can't build a temple. So the tabernacle is kind of like the temporary temple. It's this really elaborate tent that gets set up every time Israel moves around so that they can have this space as the center of their religious life. Now, if you read these chapters, uh, here's an Easter egg for you that's Honestly, I wouldn't pick up even if I read these chapters a thousand times. But something really incredible that I want to draw your attention to, and that is this. In these chapters, God speaks seven times. In fact, you could go count it yourself, and God said, or and the Lord said, happened seven times. The whole set of instructions and laws about the tabernacle comes up twice. At the beginning and at the end of these speeches, and in the beginning and at the end, we've got, seven, we've got seven items in the tabernacle. So that happens twice. Then we've got the seven-day ordination process for these priests. And then we've got seven items that these priests have to wear. In other words, this is all over the number seven. And all I want to highlight for you, because we're going to unpack this a little bit more when we deal with the issue of the Sabbath. But when it comes to the Hebrew Scriptures, the number seven always points to God's presence, God residing as king, and God's glory. And so when we just understand, man, I I may not always pick this up, but seven is all over this idea of the tabernacle. In other words, this is already saying to us, this is all about God's presence, and this is all about God's glory. Now, before we get stuck into the actual chapters in the book of Exodus, just in my own private time, I've been working through the book of Deuteronomy, and I was so struck by the following verse that I think really gets to the heart of what the tabernacle is all about. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7 says this, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way Yahweh, the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. It is all about God's presence. It is all about the unique way that God is near His people and that God wants to be amongst His people and to be enjoyed by His people and for somehow that to be evidenced to the nations around them and around us. And so already this kind of gets to the heart of two different ways to think about religion. We could dive into all of these elements concerning the tabernacle, and there's a lot of details here. We're not going to go through all of them, and we can kind of get stuck into this ritualistic mindset that it's all about this, and then that, and then do that, and then this must be done, followed by that, whereas when we realize what the heart of it's all about, the rituals are really just helping these people engage the active living presence of God, Now, we can say, oh, yeah, but those are the Israelites. We're different because we don't have these rituals. We've got them. Listen, I've got to be honest with you. I love a day like today where despite the cold weather, as Anik said, just as an act of worship, so many of you came out to be part of what God's doing here. I love it when, to be honest, when everything works. I love it when we're engaged in worship, and it really feels like we're engaging with one heart and with one voice. I love it when it really feels like we're here to engage the heart of God through His Word. But even for myself, I've got to be so careful that I can start loving the experience of those things more than God Himself. That if something goes wrong, oh, that was a total mess. Oh, but but was, was God there? Was God doing something? So right from the outset, we've got to recognize that behind all of these rituals and behind the entire setup of the tabernacle is this heart. Isn't it so amazing that God is so near His people? So here's how the story starts in Exodus 24, verses 9 to 18. And we're going to read a number of verses here this morning. But Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, or Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire. What color is sapphire? Blue, keep that in mind. Clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Man, I would have loved to be there on that day. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the and commands I have written for their instruction. And then Moses set out with Joshua, his aid. and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, hello, is that starting to just remind you of how important this is, on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain, and then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So what I want to draw your attention to here is kind of three levels of engaging the presence of God. The first level is where all the Israelites were around the base of the mountain. The next level was where Moses was with Joshua and the 70 elders. And while they could somehow see God, there was still a bit of a barrier between them and God. And then at the top level, the most concentrated experience of the presence of God, Moses alone kind of goes through this fire cloud to be with God's concentrated, manifest presence. So the the, 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 the the people of Israel at the bottom, the elders in the middle, closer to God's presence, but not quite there. And then Moses right at the center in this very exclusive place. And what happens now in the next chapter is God starts to say, listen, here are the building materials that I need for the tabernacle. So you can go tell your people to do that. And then we get verse eight and nine, and then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. That's always the point. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then God starts to give just some of the items that need to be made and what they're going to look like. And the first thing, we're not going to go through all the details. The first thing that God tells Moses to make is what we've come to know as the ark. And it's this box basically so big so high so wide made out of acacia wood inlaid with gold covered with gold with rings on the side so that people can stick these poles through and and carry the ark but i want to read what's going to be on top of the ark and that's in verse 17 make an atonement cover and by the way these words won't be on the screen just listen to this and maybe look at the picture that you have before you make an atonement cover aka a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and to make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Stephen, what's a cherubim? It's an angel. And before you confuse the cherubim in the Bible with Cupid the cherub, with his cute little bum bum, you know, throwing a heart into people's hearts, all right, a cherubim in the scriptures are these fearsome angelic creatures. Often they get come in different forms, but there's always kind of a hybrid of wings and various land and, and, and sky animals, often some human elements. And so really fearsome creatures to experience and encounter. So we've got the two cherubim out of hammered uh, gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward overshadowing the the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. These are the 10 commandments. And there above the cover, between the two cherubim that are above the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you. That's where my presence, the most concentrated form of my presence will be. And I will give you all my commands for the Israelites. Now, there's kind of two ways to hear what I've just read. The one way is to go, okay, well, you know, God could have made this thing to look like anything. It could have been any form. He could have chosen any kind of details to go on this thing. And that's usually how I used to read this. thing. It's kind of an arbitrary uh, choice for what the ark is going to look like. But another way is to start asking questions like, why? Why like this? Why is one of the first descriptions above the ark this place of atonement? Why do we need atonement? By the way, atonement is when our sins are covered. What's going on there? And why these details, a whole lot of detail about these two cherubim kind of covering and protecting this place where atonement happens and where God's most concentrated presence is gonna be experienced. What's going on here? Why are those choices? So I want you to hold on to those questions. Then one of the other major features in the tabernacle is the lampstand. And maybe what comes to mind is the menorah that maybe some of you have even seen or have in your home. So what is it? Well, let's read these verses. 25 verses 31 to 36. Make a lampstand of pure gold and hammer it out. Base and shaft. It's flower-like cups. Buds and blossoms shall be of one piece with it. Maybe you can already start observing what are the major themes that come out of this description about the lampstand. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand. Three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch. Three on the next branch and on the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand, there are to be four Cups shaped like blossoms, so shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand. A second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair. Six branches in all, plus one in the middle. Seven. Hello. All right. The buds and branches shall be of one piece with the lampstand, hammered of pure. Gold. I'm hoping you're starting just to see this idea. This is not just an average lampstand. Number one, this lampstand is once again associated with God's glory and God's presence and God's life, but more particularly, it's meant to depict a tree. A tree. Of life, So I'm just throwing that out there and we're gonna get back to this in a second. Let's move on. We've got these curtains in the tabernacle. 26 verses one. Make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of finely twisted linen and blue. Purple and scarlet yarn with cherubim worked into them by a skilled craftsman. There's a cherubim again. Why? What's going on there? So those are the outer courtyard curtains. Then we go one level in, verse 31 of the same chapter. Make a curtain of blue. Remember, I asked you to think about the color blue, of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen with cherubim. Once again, worked into it by a skilled craftsman. Hang it with gold. Why all the gold? With gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood, overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Testimony behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. So, If you kind of haven't been tracking here, what you're starting to get are these increasing levels of getting nearer and nearer the most concentrated place of God's presence. But every time you do that, you go through this bluish veil. With these cherubim woven into it, and every time you go to the next layer, there's another bluish veil with these cherubim woven into it. Then we get to this most holy place, where there's this place for atonement, God's concentrated presence, and once again these cherubim protecting. Now let's try pull this together and add to this. We've got this tree, this living tree, indicating God's presence and God's life. What's going on here? Now, once again, we can either go, okay, well, that's pretty random, or we can pull on the thread. So let's ask this question. When last did we see these ideas coming together? God's presence wanting to be with men. Cherubim, this this idea of God's presence and this, this tree. I'm hoping what's coming to some of your minds is this idea of Eden. Because right at the beginning of Eden, if you think about it, what was the point? The point was God being amongst these people, us not needing to be afraid of God's presence before sin came into the world. And so we could be with God and humanity and God would live together and thrive together. And there was this tree This tree of life, somehow this life-giving, concentrated place of God's presence and God's glory. Mysterious, but there. And then what happened? Well, when Adam and Eve sinned, God took them outside the garden. And what did he put there to protect them from this concentrated sense of God's presence? Cherubim. Can you see it coming together here? That is why we need atonement. Because of the sin, we lost access to the tree of life. We lost access to God's concentrated presence. And so in order to get back in, we need to go past these cherubim and our sins need to be atoned for. So here where I want to draw the thread a little bit tighter, let's look at Eden, let's look at the mountain, let's look at the tabernacle. You see, in Eden, we've got Eden, and then we've got in Eden, we've got the garden in Eden, and then in the center, we've got the tree of life, this broad area, this middle area, and this most concentrated sense of God's presence. Once again, in the mountain, we've got the general area, we're kind of near God, then we've got the next level up, uh, 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 Moses and the elders, and then we've got the one place that only Moses could go. And in the tabernacle, we've got the same thing. We've got the outer courtyard where the average Israelite could go. Then we've got the holy place, and we've got to enter through these kind of guardian cherubim and this blue veil separating us from God's presence. And then only did you have to go through another level of this blue veil and these cherubim protecting us to get to the most holy place. And once again, there are these cherubim protecting God's presence. And the atonement seat is there where our sins can be forgiven. So once again, this is not simply about architecture. This is not simply about ritual. This is not a random set of choices made by God. This was all designed to communicate what God's heart has always been. And that comes back to Deuteronomy 4 verse 7. What other nation is so great as to have the gods near them the way Yahweh our God is near us whenever we pray to Him. Now if you follow the story of Israel, they weren't in the wilderness forever and then eventually they moved into their land and under, the, under King David they conquered the city of Jerusalem and then eventually David's son Solomon was able to build the permanent temple And because of his wealth and his power, it was absolutely magnificent. But all of these theme details are all there. If anything, they get expanded, intertwined in these curtains are pictures of plants and and flowers and pomegranates. Just once again, reiterating this idea of this is like Eden. Now, you kind of wish that there was the end of the story. But it wasn't too long before we start seeing the general trend that Israel was going into and increasingly they became unjust increasingly they became idolatrous and they weren't worshiping the the God of Israel and then because of that after many many generations they were taken into exile and some of you would know what that meant that meant that the Babylonian army came in and destroyed the capital city Jerusalem but even more heartbreaking was that they destroyed the temple. And it wasn't just about a building, it is about God's presence. Around this time, God opens Ezekiel's eyes and he shows Ezekiel his presence leaving the temple. So what now? Well, after some time, God's people came back and we did this a couple of years ago in the book of Nehemiah. They rebuild Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. And Haggai says this. He says, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Oh, wow, it looks like we're back on track here. One problem. There were some older people in that time who recalled Solomon's temple, looked at this new temple, and we were heartbroken. Because it held nothing compared to the glory of Solomon's temple so what's going on here how is this going to be the greater temple well fast forward once again we're going through the whole history here a few centuries later and we've got King Herod who is ethnically a Jew but he's pretty much on team uh, 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 um, team Rome at the time he's this megalomaniac and so he's in charge here and uh, on one hand he wants to appease the Jews and so he wants to give the temple a bit of an upgrade just kind of keep the peace but uh, there was something with uh, uh, um, King Herod he was a megalomaniac he had small man syndrome or something because he never did a small building project he was intent on showing off to the world around him and that's historically true And so instead of just upgrading the temple, he made it the most amazing temple ever. And apparently it made Solomon's temple look like nothing compared to it. Oh, wow, now are we back on track. Well, by this stage, there's quite a lot of corruption in the temple worship. The big question mark is, has God's presence returned? Because that is really what defines the heart of what's going on here. And then we get John 1 verses 14. Speaking about Jesus, he says the word, now the word is Jesus and and it's a a word that's filled with Jesus' divinity. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now maybe we don't pick this up immediately, but this is John's mic drop moment. This is John's matrix moment. Because the word dwelling here, he takes the word tabernacle and he turns it into a verb. And he says, Jesus tabernacled amongst us. What he's wanting us to do is import everything that I've been saying. All the incredible implications of Eden and the mountain, God's glory and God's presence. And import all of that into Jesus Christ. But not only the tabernacle, also the temple. Jesus says one chapter later, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken us 46 years to build a temple and you're gonna raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. This was the greater temple. Jesus himself. And so now instead of meeting with God, going through these rituals, bringing sacrifices, going through these boundaries and these veils, instead of being worried about God's holiness and what it's going to do to me in my unforgiven state, needing to go through these these barriers and, and these angels and these cherubim, now the temple is going out amongst the people. Now the temple is taking forgiveness into the dark places of the people of Israel and the nations around. Now the presence and the glory of God is moving around, taking the light and the life of God's glory and spreading his kingdom as he does that. And so the big question is, and this is where it lands for us, is how do we know that God is with us? And their answer is, because Jesus is with us. Shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the physical temple was destroyed. Why? Because we don't need that anymore. We don't need a physical place to offer a sacrifice because Jesus became the sacrifice. The place we enter to meet with God is Jesus himself. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the presence of God. No one comes to the concentrated form of God's presence, the Father, but by me. Some people object to that. Stephen, that's, that's so exclusive. What about all the other world religions? And we could spend hours talking about that. But Jesus is the only one qualified to be the way. Jesus is the only one who claimed to be the temple. Jesus is the only one who was the temple and the high priest and the sacrifice and God's presence and glory all wrapped up in one. That is why he is the way and the truth and the life. And that is why no one comes to the Father except through him. And so Christians by definition are those who enjoy the presence of God through Jesus Christ. Let's take this one step further. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 says, Paul is writing to a church, and just by the way, a pretty messed up church, if you know anything about the book of Corinthians. Paul says, don't you know that you, yourselves, plural, Scots and Dawn, I see you're here. Don't you know that you, y'all, all all, y'all, don't you know that you, yourselves, all y'all are God's temple, And that God's Spirit lives in all y'all. What? Are you saying that the church is the temple? I'm not saying that. The Bible's saying that. You know, Stephen, Jesus I get. He was pure. He was holy. He was God's Son. He was divine. He fulfilled all of these promises, all of these predictions. But us... A church like that, a church like ours, a church that gets it wrong, a church that isn't perfect, are you saying we're the temple of God's presence and power? And The answer is yes. Not because of our awesome worship team, not because of our leadership, not because we're awesome, but because we're in the temple who is Jesus Christ. And by virtue of us being in the temple, the book of Peter says, we're like living stones being built together to be the temple. So it's all about Jesus. And that is why I've been saying so often, it's less about do I or don't I go to church, but rather how do we live out what God says we are? How do we like Jesus be this place? That proclaims the glory in the presence of God, the forgiveness of sins, that we need not fear judgment. We can come into the concentrated presence of God. The book of Hebrews says we can stand in front of the throne room of God with confidence. Why? Because we're in the temple. Who is Jesus? And we, like Jesus, get to bring God's grace, bring God's light, bring God's life, bring God's presence, His glory and His kingship and His authority, bringing it to those who need it most. That is what the church ought to be. Now, I've already mentioned that I'm not giving you three alliterated points, something to write down and forget about. I just want us to be overwhelmed with what this means. So Stephen, how can we experience this? And so glad you asked, and I'm so glad that we're doing communion today. By the way, the tables look amazing. Listen to Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 12. The book of Hebrews is all over what I've been saying today. When Christ came as high priest, of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place. Not somewhere in Jerusalem, but God's, cosmic temple. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption, a.k.a. forgiveness of sins, a.k.a. atonement. You know what happened when this happened? When Jesus breathed his last and his own blood was lying in the dusts? Those curtains, those veils separating us from the presence of God, this fear of His holiness, are we good enough to enter the presence of God? Those multiple layers of ritual and the cherubim protecting us from God's holiness, that, court, that curtain was torn in two the second Jesus died showing us once and for all that you and I can enter the presence of God in Jesus Christ. Because it is in Jesus Christ we experience atonement, the forgiveness of sins. Our sins are covered. And we can stand with confidence, not arrogance, but confidence in God's presence. Didn't write this down, but I thought about this on the way here. I want to take this one step further, and then we'll go to the table. This is where the storyline's going. What is true of the center of the Garden of Eden, which became true of the highest point of the mountain with Moses and God's fiery presence, which became true of the most holy place in the Ark of the Covenants, which became true of Jesus which because of Jesus and his glory amongst us becomes true of us, will one day become true of all of creation. And that is where God is taking us. And one day he will remove all that stands in the way of the entire creation, experiencing the fullness of his glory and presence. So as we come before the table, and we're gonna have some, just something playing while we're doing this. Once again, please don't ritualize this. Just hold this holy, sanctified imagination together and just be so grateful for who Jesus is and what he has done. And as you take of the bread and drink of the juice in your own time, Let that be an act of genuine, heartfelt, humble worship. So Lord, we thank you that even at this table, we mysteriously even experience your presence in a mysterious way. You are with us, Jesus. You are here. And so, God, we trust that because of what we are now celebrating at the table, that we can stand without shame and without fear in the full presence of God, that one day we will see with unveiled faces, that one day all of creation will be experiencing. We We thank you we get to taste that now. And it's all because of Jesus, you, the temple. You, the high priest, you, the perfect sacrificial lamb, you entering the cosmic temple and separating those curtains so that we can enter the presence of God. God, I do pray that you would bless us with a sense of your presence here as we partake. So in your own time, come take, go sit down, do some worship and to prayer with God. Take together and then we